0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Digital Economy 101 podcast. I'm your host, Dino Oreschke, and our guest today is Michael Morgan Bain. Episode is titled Crafting Content That Connects. Michael has over 20 years experience in various aspects of content creation, including writing, producing, video editing, filming, photography, photo editing, social media, and of course, content strategy. Hi, Michael, and welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Well, you know, a wise man called Howard Matthews once said, it's not a real podcast if you don't have at least one Scotsman in it. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah, he he definitely knows what he's talking about,
0: Harry. (laughs) (laughs) So can you please share um, a bit uh, about you and your background and your journey into the world of digital marketing and content creation? sure um yeah it's been a bit of a weird one to be honest with you it
1: wasn't it wasn't really planned so I started before I even worked so when I was a teenager I ran websites basically I was a nerd and I ran websites that I just thought were interesting about things like box office and just other geeky weird things that did quite well and I also ran like um like a pop culture satire blog along the lines of Perez Hilton, but not mean, <laughs> quite just funny, you know. Um, so kind of like poking fun at the way that we were so obsessed with celebrities rather than really talking about celebrities too much. Um and I did really well. And I remember kind of being taken a bit off guard by that. Um, and it kind of just taught me how to really build an audience and consider my audience and think for my audience and I suppose at that point I was still very much in the mind as a teenager that I'd end up being either a musician or a photographer. Um, but something about that kind of changed how I've started viewed art and and I started to think about, well, maybe I could make my art more for other people, not just for me, you know. Um, so when I came to going to university, I decided to try and apply for media production as well. I'd always been interested in film and um and I got offered, you know. Uh, entries for photography and also for for media, and I chose media because I thought that'd be more fun. So um it sure was fun, but I would not recommend anyone do a media production degree if you realistically want a job. <laughs> I think getting my first job was like a, a a series of you know happenstance and also just sheer gumption. And I think that other people in the media industry that get opportunities that I saw had connections. So I was like, this degree was sort of pointless. I did win some awards from a degree. I did a final film for like learn a language campaign. Um we had like no money. We used all of our own money for everything. We didn't have like, you know, the Vancouver Film School have like Alexa Aries and they have like these amazing cameras. We had like old TV cameras that we had to make everything with. And uh, we did really well from it. I think I think all of us went on in my group to kind of work in the industry. So um, we were, like, I think a good pedigree that year. Everyone really cared and wanted wanted it. So, um, anyway, I ended up going um, to work in London. Um, I got an opportunity offered to me through a talent scheme um, to go and work at Nickelodeon for six months, and that was my first job in media. And from that point on, I worked in television for, I think, seven years um, in London and then had kind of semi midlife crisis what's before midlife crisis whatever that is i had one of those quit london moved to Edinburgh for a year decided i was going to move to vancouver so um i did that so i lived in vancouver for six years i think about six years yeah um and when i moved to vancouver obviously if you want to work in like production there the world of vancouver oh sorry before then i was working in marketing a little bit at that point i'd moved into like video production And then I moved into like marketing stuff, like digital content again, which was kind of a natural fit for me, given where I'd started. I was pretty okay with all that. Um, And then... I'd also been working while I was in London in a combination of like television production jobs and sometimes more marketing roles for television companies. So there was always a bit of overlap with marketing for me and what I was doing. Um, but when I moved to Vancouver, it basically kind of took over and I started to work for like more diverse companies. I worked for like a, a, an app startup that was doing, um, kind of like live streaming, sort of like what TikTok ended up being, I had an aspiration of being that, uh, we did not, when that was clearly Um, and then we i i also worked in a couple other places when i was in vancouver i worked in some salad bars when i was first there um i worked in a gelato shop um where else did i work uh i worked in um vancouver aquarium and their marketing team to do ocean conservation kind of messaging and films which was really i loved that i was very excited by that um and then worked in a kind of a spread of other sort of marketing jobs and content-based jobs so, I think naturally for somebody who comes from content production, you know, marketing can be a good overlap area because it's sort of, if, if you care about an audience, which not all content producers do, but if you care about your audience, marketing can be a natural fit for you because you're trying to attract an audience to something um, and you want to show them the care and the respect that you think content should kind of embody, you know, so that's sort of it. I mean, that was a long-winded answer. I could
0: redo that answer much quicker if you'd like me to. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't worry about it. Um, so you were basically in the driver's seat. Now, uh, talking about the audience, what are the key elements that makes a piece of content truly connect with the audience? What was the, what was the question again? So, could you answer, ask me that again? I just was reflect <laughs> I got lost. Key, key you li- list you, in your own opinion, key elements that make content truly connect with the audience. Okay, I actually have an
1: answer for this. So I had a really great producer once who taught me this skill. She told me that when I was creating content, I would go off and I would be, you know, making documentaries about this and that and the other, and it'd be like so interesting to me. She was like, why? Every time I would add something new or I wanted to say something, she was like, why? And the question of why is really what matters in content. And I think it's something that not many marketers and not many companies really interrogate internally in themselves. It's like, why are we doing this? Because when you ask the why, then you have to break down the who it's for. The when it's like the who, what, where, why, when is like what you learn at school, right? So, those things still exist for content. And I think the why is really the core that breaks all of those things down. So, to me, the one thing about making great content for audiences is asking why you're doing it and why they need it. Do you know what I mean? And I think if you can answer those two questions effectively, then you can connect. And sometimes marketers are doing the why for us, like we need it. And you're like, well, okay, cool. But how do we make a wife for the people who are on the other side? And that's the conversation that needs to happen to make great content, I think. But sometimes it doesn't happen. Um, So, yeah, that's how I feel about making great content. I think that's the fundamental aspect that I always interrogate when I start. Any sort of content production is like, why should this exist? And if the answer can't be clearly answered, then it shouldn't be. So I would sometimes do myself out of a job. When I was like working in a, a video production agency, I would sit with clients who would come to us for videos and be like, why do you need to make this a video? Can you do this as a PowerPoint or can you do this as a presentation? Or you could, like, there's actually no need for, there's no need for this to be a video, you know? So I think why I can also not just interrogate, you know, if content needs to exist, but like what the best approach for that content is, um, so yeah, always starting with the why I think is a really great way to to make excellent content. And I think the other things that form great content are a real focus on your audience in terms of like, put yourself in their shoes. If you, this is again, something that doesn't always happen with when you're creating content, right? It's like a bunch of people in a room are like, let's do this, let's do that. And then no one's really sitting thinking what that means for the person who's actually going to consume the content. So I'm the annoying person in a room usually that's like, what does this do for the audience? What does this do for our persona? What does this do for this person? Um, I'm always asking the why again and again
0: and again in different sort of formats until people hate me. Yeah, so. And how does technology fits into why? Because we are witnessing rapid change of technology. Uh, it, well, in the past 16 years, it's been a crazy ride.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially marketing, I think. Marketing is an area where technology is more pronounced than probably many other fields because marketers are usually so overworked and um over, overwhelmed i suppose that they need tools to help them right they usually are asked to do, I, I think that marketers are usually the job of like four people right so they're like oh you can do you can do marketing and then they're like they end up doing social media they end up doing like they end up doing so many more aspects of their job than they ever expected to do so technology is a really excellent way to help marketers gain time back I mean, there's a multi-billion dollar industry, I'm sure, on tools that market to marketers. Sure. What a shock. I'm like, hey, that save time, blah, blah. But um, I get them all, I'm bombarded by them on social media all day long. So <laughs> I definitely know that. But I think um, weird. I think technology is really having an impact, I'm seeing like ChatGPT, of course, is giving marketers new ideas about audiences. You can just ask ChatGPT now, you know, to do foundational research, I suppose, and it does, it does a pretty good job of it. Like, you know what I mean? That's the the sort of scary part about it is that it's just, it saves so many hours of what you would have done yourself. But I think what it's also doing is weirdly shaping a narrative that would have shifted had human hands been involved, you know, so you can go to chat GPT and say, you know, make me an image of a little girl looking up in awe at the stars, right? And it'll give you a really great image, a series of images of little girls, and then you'll choose your favorite and then you'll make iterations and eventually you'll get to one that you're like, yeah, I like that a lot. That's still not what you would have actually made had you created it yourself. So I think that that's the difference about, it's a subtle difference, but it's an important difference that when human hands are not intervening, there's a slight bit of magic that gets lost there where when you're on a set and you're taking a photograph of a child and they're pointing to the sky, there's things that happen on set. There's moments that you see, there's things that you kind of new perspectives you get on that moment that you would never get sitting in front of a computer writing a prompt. So that's how I feel about, you know, the way that technology is helping creativity it's an excellent tool, but it also loses a bit of magic and a bit of sparkle. And I'm seeing that in AI content already. Whenever I see AI ads, That are using imagery i'm like "Mm, that's just devoid of its soul you know and the soul is that that sort of dynamic aspect of like things that you can't control it may even mean that the quality of the content that you're able to create is lower than what usually than what chat gpt can create but but it's not because what you're creating is real and what technology is creating is a composite of other people's kind of creations and ideas so i think revolutionary time for marketers with the way that we use content and the way that all these kind of tools are generating content. But I think that generative content is a double-edged sword, you know, it's, uh, it's got a great application, especially for small teams, marketers that are being scrappy, trying to be dynamic move quickly, but it also holds real power and loses a bit of sparkle, you know, and by, by real power, I mean, the, like it's already putting people out of work. So I think. As as marketers, we need to be responsible and think not fast, but responsibly. And that's not something that marketing always does either. You know, we're kind of like the tech company in that regard, where like tech companies, what move fast and break things. And even tech is like maybe we should slow down on this one. You know, Um, but marketers are not really on that bandwagon. We're like let's go. So I think that's the that's the difference I'm noticing there.
0: Yeah, and we here we have also the third angle. So we have the audiences, we have the technology and we have uh, media platforms and they are also evolving. So how does then one connect all of the three dots when when doing the planning, when doing the content strategy part? That's really, that's a good question. And I think it's one
1: of the things that, you know, when you work in, for example, social media, it's such a hard thing to keep up with, you know? And I think all social media (laughs) managers, like that's why it's a full-time job is because even the keeping up with all the platform changes can be really time-consuming, requires lots of research um, and really constant strategy shifts. So I think when we're working, this is when when you're working with basically, you know, tech dominance from a couple of companies, it it creates a bit of a a vacuum where there's no consultation process on changes or shifts or algorithms. It's just like, we're doing this now and we're not even going to tell you. So then you'll find a lot of social media managers, for example, scrambling to be like, why is all of our content bombing now? What's happened? And it's an algorithm shift, you know? So I think really what I've seen a lot of the messaging about that, it used to be chase the algorithm, rig the algorithm, you know, um, you can position your content if you do this, that, and the other. But a lot of social media managers are now recognizing that sort of folly to try and like game the system because it changes all the time. So instead of, of kind of chasing after gamification of a system that changes the goalposts just make content that's authentic and right for you and doesn't burn everyone out in your team and makes everyone feel happy and makes everyone feel proud and that stuff is what's going to connect so i think that's that's great i'm seeing that as well because a lot of these sort of marketing kind of experts and gurus as well would be like you need to do this you need to do that and now they've changed their message to being like Why burn out, you know, when you could just do what's authentic? And I totally agree with that. Like, I have always believed that the best way forward for marketers, um, especially in a world of changing platforms, is to just be authentic. And if you can really have a why to everything that you're doing, then that content will perform. It may not perform, you know, like Titanic at the box office, but it will... Sometimes do different things, and I think that's what we also need to remember is like content is not just a, a singular goalpost, it's not ROAS, it's not you know, there's so many aspects of content that can do things for your brand and leverage it, would be leveraged in different ways for your brand. I think that's yeah, important to remember as yeah.
0: well. L- listening to you, um, you, you reminded me on that story, uh, about Pablo Picasso drinking coffee at the coffee shop. You, you know, the story, and he was no, tell me. No, he And then he, he was doodling something in, in his blog or handkerchief, something like that. And the, the lady came and she said, um, Senor Picasso, I want to buy this from you. And uh, he said, uh, yeah, for sure, it's $20,000. $20,000, but you did it, uh, it. It took you one or two minutes to do it. And he said to her, like stone cold, no, it took me 60 years to do it. Fair oh. Yeah, That's sassy, it's, I love it. <laughs> testing, bailing, planning. Well, Pablo Picasso was a brand; he can afford that. And talking to brands, um, it's it's very important for brands to you know have their identities and have their uh, their values and all, all over the place. And in this rapidly changing economy in which we live in. Can you give some example uh, which you have seen or maybe which you have worked on that uh, brand had a significant impact uh, on the audience, on the market, uh, on the, you know, overall public?
1: Definitely, I think that when, you know, I worked at, I've worked, i worked in a couple of like really big brands and I think that big brands always connect with like mass audiences in different ways. So the BBC, when I worked there was really about you know connecting with a, an audience is sort of a public entity that, that does good um uh, when i worked to nbc that was a very different proposition that's like basically mass market um nbc but we did the olympic games and the way that the olympics were positioned for nbc was really important um so you know that there was like a very concerted, like Britishness effort there, and actually, my job there was to basically be a locations producer, which was like helping them um, find locations and setting up shoots for them, and being like, "Here you go." So for um, the Olympic Games, yeah, on the Olympics twenty twelve, I'm in London, so that was super fun, and I think that that was. I think that the NBC Olympics, whenever they do their branding for uh, the Olympic Games every year, I'm always like, every four years, I should say, sorry, I'm always like really excited to see how they position it because they do things in a way that is distinctly American, but speaks to the local market. So the one for Paris 2024, they've just released as Megan the Stallion, you know, the the, the rapper. uh, And it's her like next to like some sort of mythical, um, what do you call it when it's a winged? A winged horse um there's a name for them
0: pegasus. like a
1: pegasus isn't it pegasus. right yeah it is yeah, thank you yeah so there's like a pegasus there and then she's like ah like it's all very her and i was just like that's so like that's such an american interpretation of what Paris could be like every other channel is like going after it just shows me as well that i, I think the NBC is like as a team are very responsive to an audience because they know that's going to be shared on social media they know that like that's the reason that campaign exists is not to be like we're in Paris it's because they know that Megan the Stallion's has profile they know that people are going to talk about that weird ad you know so I think that they really understand their audience as Americans and they can contextualize it to different locations and brands and that I think is really impactful when a brand understands its audience in that way, I think is, is important. Um, but, and what, then what the last one,
0: Sorry, what about the data here? Uh, how, how is the data? Uh, well, you know, we both know that it is important, but do you look at the data before you start drafting the content? Do you look at some tools
1: always yeah i mean for mbc for i didn't have access to that data i was just a locations producer right so i was I was a on the boots uh boots on the ground sort of producer that would go and set up shoots for them and find locations and suggest locations for shoots and ideas to producers who were already working on content of where they might shoot things and why they might take it there and what aspects or angles they could really you know utilize i suppose the data there was like a shit ton of research that i did before They came. Um, Mm -hmm. I spent like about a month and a half before they arrived on the ground just like doing heavy research and recce work. Um, So even that data, I suppose, is where I would refer from. I always, whenever I'm creating content, never ever start without some form of data informing the decision-making. Again, because I don't want to make assumptions for audiences. So it's important to have research going into content that at least supports what kind of your theories about audiences might be. I think when I worked, for example, on Oceanwise and Vancouver Aquarium, one of the things that we were doing when I arrived was like long form documentaries, which were going online. They were like five to 15 minutes. That's long form for social, right? But uh, I think immediately, I was sort of questioning the fall-off rate and the drop-off rate of viewership and looking at that data and like, like, okay, there's a heavy, heavy drop-off here. Like, not many people are viewing to completion. So this suggests to me, we need to look at ways to get our message across more succinctly. So I pitched like a a quick turnaround news sort of format that we would do every Friday that I would go out and I would write in the morning within an hour, then I would shoot it within an hour, and then I'll come back and edit it within like an hour and a half. hours and then by the afternoon it was delivered and live um and we started doing that every friday and immediately saw a shift in success and audience you know and because it was timely as well it was doing the job that we wanted which was to attract people to the ecosystem to learn more about ocean conservation so data in that instance basically was a game changer you know i mean um and really listening to what the data is telling you is what what i think is important Sometimes marketers don't like what the data is telling them. Um, it doesn't uh, align with what we want to hear or what we need to hear from our audiences
0: and our own hearts. And how do you overcome those challenges? Then,
1: you know, you just have to put your big boy pants on and be like okay with it. You know, I think. I think. Like, <laughs> big boy pants. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. I mean, any any marketer can have really. I think it's about just being flexible and open. I mean um really being willing to to accept that you're wrong is a hard thing for creatives and marketers right we have really hard set theories about audiences we have really like strong creative convictions as producers and content creators and when you're wrong on that, it's really you have to be humble about it and be like okay well i'm not the genius i thought i was it's okay like you know um and that's sort of a constant daily basis for me that I'm learning new things about how I was wrong. So (laughs) I think it's okay to be wrong and I think it's okay for you to learn. Um, Yeah, I think just being super open-minded to audience, always like checking in frequently, not ignoring the content, not ignoring the messaging. And if there's any way that you can get that's a conversation with your audience, any path or avenue that that is in existence, listen to it all the time. Like don't listen to it like once in a while. Don't listen to it like, you know, oh well, I guess I should look at the data. Like every week you should be doing that. That is my number one recommendation for content creators and marketers. Content creators working within organizations and marketers. And even if you're an independent content creator, you can be doing research on in your industry. You can be doing research on your audience. Like whatever it is, you know that, you know, if you're for example an indie filmmaker and you know that your films are going to be targeting Hotter fans for example there's there's ways you can keep your finger in the pulse of what that market is doing what it's looking like and what's succeeding um and, and ultimately you know the question of creative excellence versus commercial success is probably a bigger one in this podcast but um i think both can exist right and i think both only exist if the content creator is open minded to the fact that commercial success or commercial achievement doesn't mean um, some sort of like negative statement on your creative work. It's the Taylor Swift question. I was waiting to bring up, bring up Taylor Swift today because you know that there's not a the conversation. It was
0: genu- I knew way. you will.
1: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but genuinely though, when I was a, when I was a kid, right, I, I'm, 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 I was growing up and everyone loved Britney Spears, and then no longer they loved Britney Spears, and Britney Spears was lame because she was too popular and she was too big and too influential. And I was like, why? She
0: was not for misfits.
1: No. right
0: exactly she
1: everyone started to like Linkin Park and like cool like you know cooler music and I was still stuck with Britney Spears and I was like well I love Britney Spears she's great all of her music's fun it's like catchy and I realized that now in retrospect people love all of her songs are like wow that was such a great song and I'm like well at the time we couldn't see it because we were so consumed with commercial success equals negative like it's not a good thing and I've never been in that camp you know I've never been in that camp. I've always thought that there's blockbusters that can be excellent. There's pop stars that can create great music. You don't have to be a snob to, to yeah, I, th- I feel like that's the number one. Like, let people enjoy the things they enjoy and don't make them feel bad about it. That's what I would say. That's the tangent, but I feel strongly
0: with that. <laughs> and where, where, where can people go to find out more about you and your work? Where
1: can people go? Um, a website um MichaelMorganbeam.com. That's where I kind of have a, a weekend money portfolio on my work. I that is about...
0: listed in the episode show notes. Okay. What was that, sorry? It will be listed in episodes uh show notes. Okay. So we'll have the Thank direct you. URL to your landing page to your website. Sorry.
1: Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I mean um yeah,
0: that that's probably the only place to go to find out more about me. I am <laughs> no no social media. You're, not you're really. I mean, music, I have social media for the clients.
1: Uh, yeah, if you have if you have my Instagram, then you're going to see like a lot of photos of my dog. So um, probably not worth following me on Instagram, to be honest. And yeah, no, my my website's probably michaelmorganbean is the the place you can go and find out more about me. And I also have an IMDb <laughs> that I've not updated i think i'm supposed to update it myself but someone started one i think when i was in bbc or something it must have automatically populated because i never yeah and then now it's added shows and i'm like oh i need to add other shows into there but yeah that's probably probably
0: only two places okay it's gonna also be in the show notes michael thank you so much
1: Thank you, Dino. This was super fun. Thank you for uh, having me and, and inviting me to be part of your podcast. It was really great. And um, yeah, um, I think that, you know, if there's one takeaway for people from, from me, for content, when they're creating it, especially for new platforms, evolving technologies, it's just always bring it back to the authenticity of you and your brand and always think about the why, you know what I mean? Like, why are we doing this? And if you can't really answer that question, then reevaluate how you're doing it. Is is what I would say.
0: Awesome, and many thanks to you too. Hope you have enjoyed the episode. Please do click subscribe and do follow the channel because we have new episode coming out soon.